Welcome to The Work, a new podcast brought to you by TheatreWorks Silicon Valley. Join us as we explore the world of theater, connecting with artists in a national conversation around the most pressing issues within the industry. I am Alejandra Cisneros. And I'm Steve Muterspaugh. And this is The, the Work. Work. On today's episode, we have Lauren Turner Hines, founding producing artistic director of No Dream Deferred, a community anchored theater that prioritizes New Orleans and is building a future where art leaders of color are not the exception, but the norm. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Alejandra. Thank you, Steve, for having me on. I'm Lauren Turner Hines. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the founder of Equity and Justice for Institutional Change, uh, which is a program of No Dream Deferred, a Black theater company located in New Orleans, Louisiana. Wonderful, Lauren. And just to give folks, um, I guess, a little background. Um, I've known Lauren for a couple of years now. We met um, when we were part of a program through Theater Communications Group, TCG, uh, called the Leadership U. Uh, we were the final iteration of that program, <laughs> which I am so proud of and like to boast of. Um, and that program was about developing a new leaders in the field by placing them um, at regional theaters. So Lauren, uh, remind us, who were you placed with? I was uh, placed at Southern Rep Theater, which is now no longer in existence, um, but Southern Rep Theater in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And then I was at Center Theater Group um, in Los Angeles, California. And um, I guess one thing that was really interesting about that program was uh, that we weren't interns or um, fellows or anything like that. We had autonomy over the work we wanted to do at the organization. Um, but then we learned some lessons of leaving from that program about uh, the harm that sometimes comes to people of color, especially when they're emerging in this field, when they enter uh, regional theaters and primarily white institutions. Um, would, would you say that's that's true, Lauren? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the thing that was so empowering about the opportunity is exactly what you said. So we were there. Um, our funding and our support was a separate source other than the theater that we were working with. We had our own objectives and goals for our time there. Um, and really the, the framework for the program was that these theaters were offering us space to try new ideas um, out, right, in their space. Um, and it was mutually beneficial in the, in the way of um, having, um, having access, the theaters had access to us as emerging artists, right? in terms of new ideas and things they could try without having the burden of having to find the, the personnel, you know, budget to support us. Yeah. And the be benefit for us was that it was designed so that we could try some of our ideas <clears throat> without feeling like, you know, if they have to work or our job is on the line or it has to work or, um, you know, every like everything else is going to crumble if this one idea or this thing doesn't work. It gave us some some sort of like experimentation space. Right. Um, yeah. But the thing I quickly realized that was very particular to my location in the Deep South and my social location as a black woman 
was that it was really hard for that institution, and I'm assuming probably a lot of institutions, especially predominantly white institutions, to really know how to engage with me if I wasn't an employee or staff, right? Yeah. There was this complete loss of context for a Black woman who is working in service of a goal or idea that also leadership in that institution did not have full control over. And so I think for me, that was the thing I kept bumping up against was that power dynamic was off. Um, and it, I think it, it uncovered so much in my experience, especially from the leadership of that institution. Uh, it uncovered deep-seated racist um, notion, right? that I don't even think the people who were there were prepared to have revealed. I think so much of nowadays, the work around diversity, equity, inclusion, access, is so much is wrapped up into the language, right? Mm -hmm. And I think so many people think if they know the right words, they have somehow moved beyond racism. They are now post-racial. Yeah. <laughs> They're in a post-racial society. <laughs> right. And so me being in a space that did not have quote unquote control over me in the typical way, in the status quo ways that people who are employed, usually, you know, those in leadership feel they have control, um, really exposed a lot of what was left in terms of analysis building um, that what work was left to be done. Yeah, there. I think there was something about uh, the agency in terms of money, right? So in this grant, the the funds were given directly to the grantee. So the organization had no control over the funds coming to this individual. And additionally, one of the things that I think I found most fascinating about our cohort, particularly, was that a lot of us went into the program not uh, looking for an artistic director, executive director relationship, but a lot of us came in um, wanting to build community. Exactly. So my role with when I was um, working with Southern Rep was that of a community um, and artistic producer. So I produced, um, I would say gatherings, really community gatherings that centered art making. And I also was, uh, um, was uh, cultivating artistic communities as well, right? Um, and I think that it does say a lot that to have someone whose role that is have complete agency and also kind of stand in the gap in terms of like, this is actually the more equitable, just way to engage community. I don't know what it is you were doing before, if anything, <laughs> but like, this is what, this is what I'm going to offer. You know, I feel like it says a lot that theaters were not prepared for that. And I think about how most of the theaters are nonprofit organizations, entities who's, who's in within that nonprofit understanding, there has to be a service. That's why you get the nonprofit status. It's the center right? of that label. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking about how hard it was to talk through what it really means to engage community, 
what it means to be accountable to community and like how to introduce co-design. Like that was my big thing was like, how do we introduce co-design into these art spaces that are built in a way where there's usually one person making all of the decisions, right? So introducing co-design, like there was a huge rebuff to that. And it was so interesting because it's like, should, isn't this and shouldn't this have been the work you've been doing all along? But what it taught me, so yeah, so it did my experience in that did serve as a catalyst to starting No Dream Deferred. I started No Dream Deferred actually while still a part of the Leadership U um, program. And the first catalyst for it was just this idea that in New Orleans, Black artists should have more agency and autonomy, right? Yeah. I guess a little bit of what I was experiencing during the grant was like, oh, this should be all the time. It shouldn't just be when there's a grant. Um, yeah. the, the current environment culture in New Orleans. So even though New Orleans is a predominantly Black space, um, in the theater landscape in New Orleans, most of the theaters are still predominantly white spaces or were founded or created by white identified folk. So there was a dynamic of Black artists, we welcome you in, you know, for February or whatever, yeah. <laughs> or for, for this <laughs> production that we received this grant money for, right? And we we don't really fully give you any like autonomy or even agency over how this story or narratives are being shaped and told, right? Mm -hmm. But you're welcome to come in and work in the way, in the manner that we already work and, and fulfill this contract in the way that we say is appropriate for you to, feel to fulfill this contract. And then just as easily as we've welcomed you in, we usher you right on back out, right? <laughs> until until next February, right? And when we need yeah. you. So I was like, how do we create a space where that's no longer a dynamic? Like this is a space where we always feel um, like we have autonomy and agency over the work that we're doing. Um, and then secondly, my experience as Southern Rep pro like proved to be a complete, like I always say, I feel like I had a PhD in what not to do. Yes. <laughs> and I became so angry that that would be my experience, right? Yeah. Um, that I really, you know, I, for the longest time, because that was supposed to be like a mentorship opportunity, right? Where the, yeah. the artistic director could provide mentorship. And I remember just being so sad and also angry about the fact that even when someone was being paid, I still was being denied real mentorship in this field. Yeah. Right. And that became so enraging to me that I flew through every step that is creating your own company. I mean, like when people talk about the value of anger, anger can push you through. Anger yeah. is not sustaining, but anger is so powerful because when you are mad, there is no stopping you in terms of things that you would have in a calmer state, you feel like, is that really necessary? Do I need to do that? <laughs> anger is like, no, we're doing it. We are doing it. We're okay? not living in the greater self moment. <laughs> no. This is needed no. now. <laughs> yeah. And so I always say anger started no dream deferred. Rage started no dream deferred. And I think I really do believe that love sustains it. Mm. Love keeps me mm -hmm. going. Yeah. Yeah. And the other beautiful part of, I think, No Dream Deferred is that even if even in its name, it's a disruption of the field. It is not called like 
theater group, rep, um, works. It's not, it's even if in its name, it has possibility to be anything, right? Any type of storytelling vehicle, which is something I think is so beautiful and I'm so proud of. I think that one of the distinctions early on was that theater as a field is a thing. It's a real thing to most of uh, my colleagues who are white identified, right? They're like, you go to school mm-hmm. and you struggle, right? Everyone knows you struggle and then you get the job and you do the thing. It's contextualized. There are examples of people, right? And when I would talk to other um, Black folk, Indigenous folk, um, Latinx folk, people of color who are also in this field, they still speak about success in this field like some sort of like fantasy dreams thing. Mm -hmm. Even if they're currently working in the field, it's still like success, comfort, all of those things, power in the field. All of it is like this imaginary, hopefully one day I'll see it like mythical thing, right? (laughs) And so I just also was thinking about how much we deserve to have our dreams realized and actualized. Um, and also in the name too, it's like, we're not deferring anything anymore. Yeah. We're figuring out how it can be a thing right where we are, whether that's mm-hmm. the deep South or wherever we are, we too can have our dreams actualized and realized. Commenting on the, on the title, no dream deferred. And just that flip side of the accountability that you put to the rest of the theatrical world and say, these dreams are deferred elsewhere. We're not doing that. And I, I just love that power. I just love the fact that, you know, it is a celebration of we're not deferring the dreams anymore, but also a, hey folks, just FYI, if, if you- And if you shame still, on you. Yeah, you've, exactly, been deferring, exactly. you've been deferring these people's dreams. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you it. know, it comes from the poem Harlem by Langston Hughes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my favorite part of that poem is the question of, does it explode? And so sometimes when I'm just like, I can't believe how far we've come. You know, we're going into our seventh year of existence. Congratulations. And I'm like, I know. And I'm like, I can't believe we've survived as a small Southern Black theater company through a pandemic, through um, leadership that has no idea how to do certain things, talking about myself. (laughs) You know, but I'm like, but whenever I think back on it and then I think of where we are now and like we're in a a phase of, um, a place of rapid growth, I think, and I sometimes I get like freaked out by that I'm like oh no it's too much too mm-hmm. soon or you know you always feel like if things are going well when's the second shoe gonna drop you know so it's like that feeling whenever I feel like that I think about the poem and I think about the fact that maybe we're just experiencing the ex- the explosion right like maybe we're living in that explosion of these are dreams that have been deferred and what happens to that is you get to a point where if you really work in service of them, they're going to like happen and it's going to feel like an explosion. Um, And so it helps me to like accept a lot of the good things that are happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also um, something that just, again, always sticks to me is this idea and what you described, right? That these mentorships sometimes are harmful. And that sometimes is the only way... um, people of color may experience 
a theater organization or a system is through harm. And then the things you take away is everything you wouldn't do. And how there are two different like mindsets of folks who are like, um, you need to struggle to get to this position and place. You need to earn your right. You need to have bled through the floors to, to be able to have this position. And a new frame of mind that it's not really new, but, but it's, it seems louder to me these days of like, I actually don't have to struggle. I don't need to cry after work. I no need to be harmed. Our work can be joyous. And, um, and I don't even and I don't even want that little funky position. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. <laughs> and people are and people are starting to question it or <clears throat> better yet, look and observe and, and take stock of where their desires really lie instead of relying on what people are telling us we should desire in this field. Right. So much of what we know to be professional, what we know success to look like in the field is really when we get down to it, it's all indoctrination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when we think about it's the like process of learning our craft. <laughs> right. And so, so much of our work with EJIC and when we work with clients is first just getting everyone to understand or have a shared understanding of that fact alone. Like, like let's explain the, the framework for us to understand that really the anti-racist, equitable, inclusive act or action to take is to begin to question everything. Just yeah. start there. When you have the thought in your head, if someone asks you, why are we doing this? And, and the first thing that pops in your head is that we've always done it this way. That should also be like, bling, bling, bling. This is the first place we need <laughs> to look flag. to change, right, to change. Because we should just go ahead and assume that anything that is of the status quo is going to lead us back to the exact same place we're at right now. And if we're saying we don't like where we're at, that means we have to actually change to change. That's the part people miss. They want to change, but they don't want to change things (laughs) in order to change. They want to like change their clothes. (laughs) Yeah, like they want to, they want people to see they've changed, but they don't want to change. Like do a ponytail today. Right, right. (laughs) But it's still you. Yeah, just Just throw on a layer today because it's windy, you know. But I've changed. Yeah. (laughs) Um, For (laughs) folks who don't know, what is EJIC, Lauren? It's Equity and Justice for Institutional Change. It's a program of No Dream Deferred in which we facilitate um, conversations within organizations and institutions that create the perfect optimal space for real um, organizational transformation to take place. And so our goal is to build out new anti-racist practices and policies um, for organizations to adopt, internalize and ultimately those new practices and policies are what leads to culture shift within those organizations. So we believe that culture shift and real change and transformation can only happen when new policies and practices are created. And that it's less about, are we personally, like, are we sure that each and every person in our organization is not racist, right? It's less about that and more about, have we created a container, an organization through practice, activated practice and policy that supports and fights racism? Can we point to them? Do we know what these practices and policies are? Um, and we get there, we get to that identification of those practices and policies 
through a deep understanding of where the organization and institution holds their very specific power and privilege. Um, so it requires a deep examination of where you are currently, where you hold power and privilege, how you are or, not, or, or are not leveraging it for change, and then a commitment to doing so, right? A commitment to those practices and policies. Um, we lead organizations through creating plans for implementation and mo most importantly, accountability to those practices and policies. And, and, and we're, and we're just all higher. around the vibe. Yeah, yeah, we're just all around fun good vibe. So. so if you need these services, please reach out to Lauren Turner yeah. to activate the EGIC team. Yeah, but you are activate. all around. Like, I mean, I know they're hard conversations, but the fact that, you know, you're, you're leading these sessions with TheatreWorks, you do come from a place of you know, you're not coming in and just like setting fire to the place. You're, you know, these are, no! these are great conversations. These are, you know, they're hard conversations, but they're necessary. Yeah, we always leave with joy. We always yeah. leave with joy. If and joy to me is the same thing as faith, because it's just the belief or the being able to envision this group in this moment on the other side of this conversation, right? So it's like, if I can see us, try being triumphant on the other side that means that I can go ahead and celebrate that now so not so if I see it I know like I don't have to get caught up in this moment right because I know we're going to get through it so I can go ahead and, and bring in the joke now even when it's tense right I can go ahead and make sure we have joy breaks and good music and and enjoy spending time with one another because I know where we're headed so I'm just celebrating in advance Something I know that you love to say and, and express is equanimity. Um, yes. And that, that is a center for you. Um, break that down for us, Lauren. Equanimity. What, what does that mean to you and when you bring it into a space? Because usually people are like, what? What is that? Or they think you created a new word that's equality. No, that's the sad part. No, yeah. it's been a word. Uh, well, equanimity quite directly just means being able to stay calm or even tempered, even in the face of challenges. But it gets a little bit more complicated than that when you think through what's required to be able to practice equanimity. Um, equanimity also has a lot of like Buddhist roots in terms of understanding it as a value. But um, ultimately, it means that you become an observer, right? You become an observer and you can speak to what is happening kind of from this place of being, this is going to sound harsher than it should be, but emotionally um, removed, right? Mm -hmm. And that we're not in a space of taking things um, personal. So we can speak to the state of our organization or conflict that's happening, right? Truthfully, as it actually is happening mm -hmm. without all of these emotional reflexes around like shame and guilt and whose fault is that and all of that stuff. We can remove ourselves from that and speak the truth as to what is actually going on right, without taking any of it personal. And if we can hold up that value collectively within organizations and institutions, we're in a way better position to be able to dismantle some of these things, these, um, these systems, right? Because we're not caught up in, in their, those systems' destinies emotionally. 
Mm-hmm. I always say, you know, in terms of facilitation, we just create space for processing. That's what we're really good at. Yeah. We don't have any predetermined outcomes. We have hopes and wishes for everyone, right? But we're not going to be able to say like, at the end of this session, this is where you'll be. Mm-hmm. What we can say is we're really good at creating uh, a safe, confidential space. We can ask the right provocations and prompts, right? To get you in a, when, in a space where everyone is talking and thinking through the issues that are facing this organization at the same time, right? Uh, but we can't, we don't know where everyone is in their own personal journey in understanding these concepts, right? Some people are at different places in their process, but we can work through how to move the organization forward, even if each individual person is at a different place in their own journey. Um, but equanimity is key to that. Um, and that's the hard part. That is really the hard part. And I think for people who oftentimes enter into facilitations with anxiety around feeling guilt or shame, um, this is a very good thing for them to try to practice as much as possible mm-hmm. is like taking in information, even about a place you love, even about a place you've dedicated your career. And when you hear accounts of things that aren't working or harm that's been endured to remove yourself even briefly from it being about you and your guilt and your shame and actually listen and hear and take into account what is happening, right? Now, if you are literally the person responsible, (laughs) there's an accountability (laughs) process, right? That can happen. But first you have to be able to listen. And I think that if we're so emotionally caught up into the situation and um, uh, focused on how this is making us feel shame and guilt, what we're not doing is we're not listening at all. Yeah. And I I just, um, in our conversations as well is this, this idea of power, right? And so much of it is a fear of losing power that prevents you from listening from acting, from uh, change, as you, right? If we can't change, then we're not actually going to move anything forward. But um, the loss of power and how folks mourn that is very interesting in this work. And also um, something that I see a lot is how many people don't recognize that everyone has power, whether it's activated in a space or not, you have power and these systems have been so good at kind of ripping that away from us or making us believe that we're powerless in situations. Um, But in fact, we can, even at whatever level you are, um, make change. And and I think I see that a lot in um, sessions is watching people realize they have power, which is quite a beautiful moment um, when you're like, oh yeah, you can, you can do stuff. Um, It may not be in alignment with your life. It may not be positive right now but you can do things and you are powerful in any given situation oh absolutely and you know ejic our shared definition for power is dependent on the idea that everyone has some and the power you hold is relative to you right but you got it yeah you got some Um, and so there's two things going on, right. That are extremely frustrating. You have people depending on their, um, the intersect, their intersections and their social uh, location. There are people who are honestly discovering for the first time that they hold power. Yeah. Right. And then there are people who've been taught because of white body supremacy culture 
that they should feel guilt or shame about any power they have. So they're not going to readily admit to the power they have. The only way you really know that those folks know they have power is exactly what you're saying, Alejandra, how they act when they are at risk of losing it, Mm -hmm. right? So it's hard to get them to articulate (laughs) what exactly is the power they hold, but as soon as it's at risk, oh baby, they are scrambling (laughs) to figure out how to hold on to it, you know, and you want to ask them right then, well, what's that you're trying to hold on to? Remember, like you said, you didn't have any power, remember? So, um, so there are multiple conversations happening between us as humans about this thing called power. Um, and so one of the things that we express in session is we people who are historically marginalized, people who are his, um, historically oppressed, right, actually don't have time for you to be sitting around feeling guilt and shame about the power that you have. And also you as an individual holding whatever power it is you had, have did not create the system under which we're all operating. And you're not responsible for the why. So what I mean by that is if you're a white identified man who is discovering that you hold power in a lot of different spaces, right? Because of your identity, you didn't create that. You didn't create that system, right? So there is a way to own the power you have without taking on guilt or shame about a system that you really did not create. Now you can work to uphold it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you could be working to uphold an unjust system, but if you want to do the work of dismantling, you have to start from this, you know, equanimity standpoint of calmly understanding where we are, what truthfully, honestly, unemotionally is the power I hold? How can I be using it to advocate for change, to push for change, right? And that's where we as creatives, as artists, really should be doing, like have the most resource at our disposal for figuring out creative solutions Mm -hmm. for how to dismantle power dynamics. If I find out that I hold power when it comes to education, I always use this example, black women are the most highly educated group of people in the United States, right? So this is the place where I discover, oh shoot, I've got some power right here, right? (laughs) Despite what media says about the power that black women hold, I actually do have power here. How do I want to disrupt or dismantle a system that is creating barriers to pe- for people from meaningful employment, right, based on education? Mm-hmm. Well, I do have some hiring that I'm responsible for doing. I want to take a deeper look at those positions and say to myself, does this really require a degree to do this job or is this how we just always have done it? And have the way that we've always done it is the, is could could possibly be the root of that be in somehow creating barriers for certain people not to have access to this space, mm-hmm. right? And so me with the power of hiring can say, I'm no longer requiring a bachelor's degree for this position. What's more important to me is like, do you know how to do this job? Yeah. You know, so that's how I'm creatively leveraging where I hold power and privilege. But if I'm too busy saying, oh, I don't want anyone to know, or I don't want anyone to think that I think that I have power when it comes to education, because I don't want them to think that I'm like, oh, power, you know, if I'm too busy doing that, I can't get to any of those next steps at all. 
Yeah, which sometimes feels very dangerous when you when you don't take the time to figure out the power you hold. Seems like a dangerous path to walk, especially as we are uh, trying to evolve this field. And then because we land in this place of good intentions. And I think sometimes the most harm I've suffered is through good intentions um, and people not being able to name their power, their social location, their intersectionality. And, and just, oh, I didn't know, but I well, didn't because, know means yeah I have a scar across my arm at this point, you know? Because they're not relinquishing power when they do that, mm-hmm. right? The power still exists and it's still being um, wielded, right? It's just not being named, which mm-hmm. adds harm. It compounds the harm that can happen when something is being, is harmful, but it, but no one is naming it or calling it out as yeah. such. Um. Yeah, I tell people growing up in the South, the most racist things that have ever happened to me and a lot of racist things that happened to me have, have been done by the nicest, sweetest people <laughs> you would you could ever meet, uh-huh. right? And exactly. that's that land of good intentions, right? The most horribly, horrible racist things, the most dehumanizing things that have been said or done have been done by people who are super sweet. Mm-hmm. and nice and liberal in theater we also have this capital a art that comes in right and everyone's doing it for the art and the harm happens if you're not perceived as fully invested in creating that art either and willing to bleed for it and it just yeah it's just 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 yes andy and everything that you were just saying yeah. and, and adding the the art aspect of it of like it's just assumed that you'll you know, do what you need to, to make it happen and cut corners and hurt yourself to make it happen. So yeah, you'll have a breakdown before opening night, but opening night resolves everything and makes you forget (laughs) whatever trauma happened because we're in this system of, we have to celebrate all this work. But again, that ties into this idea of like, does our work need to be harmful to succeed? No, it doesn't. We can work Um, happily in our communities at our own pace creating innovative work that has probably never seen the stage and be successful at it and also dismantling what success means right it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean x y and z is in the bank account Um, does it mean that people were moved or maybe saw themselves or use their own voices on stage and it's just um yeah all these systems that I sometimes we don't even know exist like you're so used to yeah. like being on this this clock that you're not aware that you're actually part of a system that is perpetuating harm because maybe you Absolutely. hold power in a space and you've never been the victim of that harm. Or you've been taught that any of the harm that you've endured is necessary mm-hmm. to get to that place of success, right? And so yeah. you've kind of just said, okay, well, this is the journey in this yeah. field. And we don't have enough models showing us other ways, other paths, right? Um, they exist. So I don't, I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm saying we don't have enough of them at our fingertips. They're not as, as accessible mm-hmm. as actual models as our traditional nonprofit industrial model for this work. Industrial fact, complex. You know, <laughs> yeah, in school, you know, I was even taught I didn't really learn that much about for-profit theater making. 
right? I was told, like, this is how you do it. You go this nonprofit route. And that adds on so many different layers of um, practices and culture and all kinds of things that have proven over time to be really harmful to folks. Where where do you see this industry evolving to? Um, to be a fully centered... E-D-I-J, accessibility, anti-racist field. Like what, how do you see this shaking out? I'm going to put the big question on you. <laughs> um, I feel, I intuit that there are a new, there's artists right now, I won't say they're new, or even that they're a new generation, but there are artists who have become really <clears throat> committed to figuring out a better way of working. Um, whether that's in or outside of institutions, right? And I think then that the pre-established institutions are going to find themselves in a position where they're going to have to adjust based on the communicated needs and desires of artists. I do have hope in that, right? Because the artists are exploring new models. Yep. They're like, look, I don't have to be in, in inside of this institution to do my work. And this isn't even where I do my best work or this isn't even where I feel best about the work that I'm doing. I actually can create collectives, for-profit models, um, hybrid models, right? I can, I can create um, groups that come together for an extended amount of time and then disband for a year or two in between and like only come together for the purposes of the, you know, the intention of art making and then disband and we don't need programs and we don't need all of this stuff, right? So there's a lot of like model um, testing that's happening right now, which I'm really excited about. And these institutions that exist right now are going to have to be in communication and in community with these with these other models that are being tested out across the nation. Um, I think that boards are going to have to embrace being creative about how they support this particular work. Mm -hmm. We know, they know, and we know how they support fiduciary responsibility, financial responsibility, right? How do they support and show up for this work? Um, and I think it's gonna become in increasingly important that um, not only staff and leadership have a clear understanding of where we're going, but that board is there to back it up. Because whenever you have change, you'll have opposition. So I tell every group we work with that, like, go ahead and expect opposition. Whenever there's something different going on, some energy is going to come and say no. And it's going to seem really plausible that you should probably stop, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, we don't have the money anymore. Or, we, or, you know, we don't have the time. But let's plan now for that. The boards, boards have a huge role to play when it comes to pushing support and really girding organizations to face those challenges, right? And it means the world, not just interpersonally to have board members say, no, like this work is important to this organization um, and this is why we're doing it, right? It means a lot interpersonally when board members can do that. But also just from an organizational management and, um, sustainability standpoint, there needs to be a history of the governing board being the facing, being the um, the loudest in a sense, or the strongest advocates for the changes that the organization is undergoing. 
Mm-hmm. We're going to flip it around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the keepers of the values, you know, like that's right. It, it's, it's, it's your job to make sure that every single part of this organization is living all the values, not just one or two, but every single value listed on that. And if there's not, then uh, an adjustment needs to be made because right now, as I feel the field is, is we have um, EDI departments, we have EDI directors, we have EDI managers that are um, almost to, 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 it's like a HR department, right? It's like you, and you it shouldn't be. Yeah, you solely are in charge of all the equity, um, you know, diversity, inclusion in this organization. When in reality, for this to work, for us to move and involve the field, it needs to be part of every single department. Every we single all have to work. own it. We all yeah. have to show up with it. We all have to do audits of all the work that we produce and see how it's hitting all of those values that we say we carry. Because if not, then it is just performative um, and it'll come and go as everything does. Yep, absolutely. Um, And, you know, I'm not necessarily a fan of um, staff, like DEI director roles. I feel like so much of this work is benefits from having an outside voice or person who is then not, you know, um, beholden to the same leadership that everyone else is, right? So it's like you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Talking about equanimity, like I, I would hate to think that the person who's there to hold the DEI work also then has to watch what they say, Mm -hmm. right? It just creates a, it creates a, creates a very non-helpful power dynamic um and I'm also not a fan of also like this idea that one person has th- this type of work it's one thing to say this person is in charge of printing the program <laughs> it's another thing to say like this is the person who upholds all our values <laughs> like what no everything cannot be delegated in the same exact way you know (laughs) or like this is the person that's going to make us diverse no what if they take a day off what happens (laughs) right if they get sick (laughs) and you know I, i will tell you also that especially if it's a person of color Mm -hmm. will it extra not happen and i'm gonna tell you why because we as you know as people of color we should never be working in these spaces for change alone never going alone right if one person of color could have changed these dynamics it would have happened a long time ago we wouldn't be here (laughs) (laughs) it would have happened a long time ago right so it's a trap whenever it's like we're hiring you as di person you're also the only person of color that has ever worked here it's a trap (laughs) don't do it run (laughs) run yeah Uh. (laughs) but i do see things shifting and changing even if folks are not um happy about it Mm -hmm. i do think see things are gonna have they're gonna have to change right um First and foremost, just because there are certain people who are just not going to be quiet anymore, right? I think if there's one thing that came out of 
um, from the beginning of the shutdown and the pandemic through the George Floyd murder and all the other murders and everything that we experienced over the course so far of the pandemic, it's that we actually, there's no brownies or special cookie that you get when you don't say ouch when something hurts. And I think at the very least, people feel freer to speak to what their experience is within some of these organizations and with experience of these systems and structures. Yeah, it's, it's, there has been an activation of power, um, particularly in the last two years and people, um, people being able to recognize that uh, this harm is not worth it um, mm -hmm. and that I can leave, which is something that has uh, made me so hopeful and also maybe also the thing that I hope really shakes our field is that this talent um, that may have been waiting in the wings to get on stage is saying, you know what, I'm going to create my own model back to what you said. And our, my model is going to have a shared power leadership. I don't need to hold all the cards at all time. I don't need to be in every room. And like you said, I, we don't need to meet every day. We can work once a year. And I've yeah. also seen that um, funders are interested in this kind of work. Yes. So money really is what moves <laughs> uh, many things. And once money is interested in these new um, models of leadership, you know, there, there is really no going back in that sense. Um, and if it is, you will be called out. You will yeah. be seen as the person who's trying to uphold an old system, which is kind of fabulous. <laughs> yeah. No, it's the best. It's the best possible scenario. Yeah. <laughs> in our field, in this work, right? That's, yeah. the, what, that's what you dream of. Yeah, I think of Victory Gardens and I think of a lot of other organizations who have been trying to like, just fall back on the old models of working of like the board has power and a community basically going, well, no, thank you. Yeah. And the repercussions are huge. Yeah. And that's always, that has been the supposed deal for nonprofit spaces all along. That should, that should have been the relationship all along. Either you're mm -hmm. in service of community or you're not. And you, yeah. we only tolerate this space or support this space as long as your mission is still in service and doing the thing you said you were going to do is still in service as this community. And also the ending of that time frame, right? So for example, with No Dream Deferred, you know, we want to bring cult, uh, stories that are culturally relevant to our New Orleans audience, right? So let's say come year 10, and we're not quite doing that anymore, right? Either there's been capacity change, budget change, whatever, but we're not able to really provide the same service. That would be a good time for us to think about how joyfully and intentionally we could transition and sunset, right? Um, us not being able to fulfill our mission or, or you know, maybe not even for the negative, maybe we've done it already. Mm -hmm. Right. We thought it was going to take us 20 years and we've done it and 10. Right. And like there's nothing left to explore here. Right. Whatever reason it is. But us deciding to go doesn't have to be sad. Right. It's one of my favorite ideas that I, I, I don't see a whole lot, but a project ends. And when a yeah. project ends, you have the opportunity for a new project to begin um, and the liberation that brings to any group, any artist is like, 
this can sunset and you can move to whatever the next phase is. You don't have to be bound. And that's one of the things I sometimes, or we see a lot actually, right? Is that we see artistic directors who are in a position for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And it's and and wondering why um, maybe the work is no longer relevant or the organization is no longer relevant, but at the same time you haven't done the work to bring in those new voices to innovate to maybe sunset or begin what is the new path that this organization can take um, and to be brave about it because yeah. there is a safety in repeating the same what you know um, and then change means that you are being brave about something you don't know how it's going to land but as you mentioned early on I know that it's a joyous place I know it's going to take yeah. me somewhere I may have not experienced but I will find joy in that and that seems to be a very very scary thing I mean as individuals we have a hard time doing that as organizations it almost seems impossible um, mm -hmm. to make that idea happen yeah and I and you know I, I, I say this all the time. I think I'm, it's wishful thinking, but one of my dream roles would be to be a death doula for organizations. Oh my goodness. Can I say and that? Like joy. <laughs> and like, when you think about communities too, it's like, um, you know, when nonprofits sunset, they have resources that then they have to figure out where Who they go. To, right. Yeah. And I just think about deep organizations like decomposing, right? And becoming again, a part of the soil of a place, right? And then that process of decomposing and that process of their life needs to be full of joy. It needs to be nutritious because whatever, when it's over, whatever they were made of becomes the soil for whatever's going to come from that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a, we're missing opportunities to do this, to do this right. And to really create generative, Commute art communities and communities at large, but like just a generative process for how things get done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I always say, you know, as a black woman and doing this for even in doing this facilitation work, but even working within some predominantly white spaces, um, that I will not save you. I will not save this organization, right? I couldn't. But even if I wanted to, right, perhaps I could, but I don't also, I don't want to, and I shouldn't have to, right? And I shouldn't have to. Sharing power. And another, right. And another thing that I realized is that we, every institution, every organization, every person has their own destiny, right? And an organization's destiny, no dream defers destiny might be to show people that it can be done right? We're a model in and of ourselves. So, mm -hmm. you know, it might not be that we're supposed to live until 30, right? But for the seven, eight, nine, 10 years that we were around, if you were around, you saw it first here, folks, you know, this can be done. And we serve that purpose. And that's our destiny, right? So I always say, I will not, and I don't want to stand in the way of any organization or institution's destiny. Who am I? <laughs> Just stand in the way of your destiny. If your destiny, right, is you, you've done great work and in these latter years, the community is like, uh-uh, and your destiny is to sunset, who am I to come in and try to save this organization from fulfilling its destiny? Mm -hmm. And if the organization is truly servicing equity, diversity, and inclusion, that is in itself how you practice that. 
if a community says they are no longer interested in what you're offering or they do not, you're not a resource to them, or perhaps you haven't done enough work to um, uh, uplift uh, organizations within the community to continue the work on their own, then you are not practicing EDI. It's not no. at the center of your work. So that, again, you can't say that you are um, living in those values. Um, because the number one right person who's going to tell you the number one group that's going to tell you whether you're doing it or not is the community. Yeah. Yep. And you know, if you have a sustained amount of time as an organization where you're not living up to your values, you are on the path to closure. It's actually inevitable. So I don't spend a lot of time discussing whether or not an organization is going to close if they don't adopt some values and some mm -hmm. stuff. because to me that's like we have countless examples when it happens it varies but it that's what eventually ends up happening right yeah. so at the end of the day when people want to make this work a separate matter from the financial forecasting and financial um, support development of an organization make that like more important than this work I know that there's a that they there is cognitive dissonance going on mm -hmm. because actually this values work right is the most important thing for the livelihood and the thrivability of your organization and institution if you don't have stakeholders come when people are showing up and and walking their values consistently yep and they will get you over rough times, right? And support um, and support your organization because they know, they really know what your organization stands on and what it values. There are organizations that are closing right now after being in around for 30 some years where people across the street are like, I didn't even know that was a theater, right? Well, couldn't tell you anything about it. Yeah. So it's it, like I I have to continuously pull this work back to center. Yeah. And make people understand. And if I have to tell, show them examples, I show them examples. But it is the most important work. Yeah. And it is I to me, it really is um, legacy. When you talk about legacy, um, so many people like to talk about it. It, it really is. Um, if you want to leave a legacy, then that means you have actually walk that walk of those values and you have listened to the community and if you are no longer there um those seeds that you planted are growing with other groups other artists and they're moving around the entire right the entire globe making that work that that is true legacy to me not yeah um, holding the space for xyz years producing shows right. Right, Sorry. which is like the fundamental purpose of institution is to hoard resource and then to dole it out to member individuals that they feel are worthy of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so how do we disrupt that understanding of, or, or that purposing of institution to be less about extraction and hoarding and more about actually seeding and feeding community, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always give this analogy. This was a real story. I probably have told you this, Alejandra, a million times Go about like <laughs> how I look at American theater. So did y'all hear this story? There was this fish market. This is a true story. I know I'm starting it off like a joke, but it's true. <laughs> Should there's I get my drums ready? <laughs> there's this fish market that was selling like fish past its, its prime in the sense of like, it's a little too old to be selling 
these fish like this. So they're a little stinky. They look bad. And so the owner was like, I'm going to go to the craft store and purchase googly eyes. You know those googly eyes? Yes, yes. <laughs> and place them on the fish. And that's what he did. So people would buy the fish because they say, oh, the eyes look fresh and it's fresh fish. And they would get home and put the fish in the pan and the googly eyes would just slide off. American theater to me is like that fish. We are spending so much time, energy, resource to find the googly eye to slap on top of the problem to make us look like we're still thriving and we're still good and we're fine. And we are dead, baby. We are dead. Like we are past our prime. We stink. Well, the fish always rots in the head, right? That's what I'm saying. We stink. People love to share that one. So this is be this is beyond what a googly eye would be able to fix. And so I but always, you, I but you went through the trouble to get in your car, go to the craft store, find the right size of googly eyes. Come back, open that fish, glue two pairs of googly eyes at every fish, and then rewrap it, and then put and it out for tomorrow. Like, well, I don't understand. I don't understand. <laughs> you understand. You do. Or else you wouldn't have even done all of that if you didn't really understand. So I always encourage everyone to just really don't fall for the googly eye. Go, Let's go beyond it, right? Let's go beyond the look, the language, to a real contextualizing of these frameworks and something that can be activated. Anti-racism lives in the doing. It is not gaining an awareness. It's not feeling something in your heart and or knowing something in your head. It is, this is what I do every day to fight racism. It's not, anti-racism is not not being racist. It's a warrior yeah. stance. It's like, this is how I fight racism mm -hmm. in my work active so yeah it's active absolutely and it's active because um racism is life or death it's that's not an exaggeration of the state of the world it is life or death for folks and um to not again be clear about how you're entering a space how you're entering the world how the way you move in rooms and in spaces to not understand the power that you hold to change is is to me um irresponsible yeah especially in the world that we live in today and the world our ancestors come from like this mm -hmm. is uh, the the world that has happened before is is just just as horrific so to not take the time for yourself as an individual to understand your power is just not acceptable in this world anymore that's right that's <laughs> no that's spot on I mean, I don't know. I just keep thinking, and, and, and it seems to be the, the common thread right now that what goes through my head with both the conversation we had with Jesus and now this one is we're at such a precipice, you know, we're the slimy fish at the precipice. And we, we, we did all this work over the last two years, right? And now we're back to the old model and it's and like we're pressing ahead, but how how to do that, the accountability of no, 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 we do the work, we do the work, we have to do the work. And even though we are back to trying to cram that old model back into place, we have to change it, you know, like that, I don't know, that's, I don't really have a question. That's just, that's, that's yeah. me. It's just what I'm hearing over and over again is the theme. Of At what point do we stop trying to change 
um, predominantly white organizations, regional theater model, theaters that are not made for us, that were never made for us, and put that energy into creating our own spaces. And that, that for such a long time was not as, is not celebrated in the same way an opening of a production is, is that there are folks who are just like, I, I'm done. I'm done trying to make this place an equitable space. I'm done trying to change the way you program a season. I'm going to put my energy in creating a space that is for me and people that look like me and find a way to make that work because it's the same energy. It's just where you want to put it into. Um, yeah. And that absolutely. And Steve, I would say that there's so much, just like with the googly eye story, <laughs> what people are defining as the work is wrong. So actually, mm. I always am like, we ain't did no work. You know, right? <laughs> like, oh my God, I ran out. I got the googly eyes. I slapped the googly eyes on. I'm exhausted. Like, what else do you want from me? The How people are categorizing what the work is, is off, right? Yeah. Um, so many people feel like they're drained just from our conversations in session, right? Uh, for various reasons, but it's because the what the work is has not been articulated. And even when it is articulated, there's a natural resistance for us to really understand what is being said. So like the work is developing the practices. But what happens when you just say that plainly is that people reject it. They either act like they don't understand what you're saying or they want to argue you down about semantics. Anti-racist, why is this? And anything to divert from the bottom line, which is what are you going to actively do? That and that becomes the doing of those things on a daily basis becomes the work. And not as many people are actually doing that um, as, as we think, right? Um, so I think one of the things I just try to make clear is what the work is. And being very clear, like you go on the bottoms, googly eyes was not anything. That was not the work. You hiring so-and-so to handle it is not the work. You hiring a lone person of color for the first time ever to, to do anything is not the work. Yep. That's nice, but that ain't the work. And also I'm worried about that person, right? Like, are they going to be all right? Yep. So it's just clearly, and being willing to, um, sh to show up and say no as much as I need to, right? No. That's not it either. And be able to deal with having capacity for the tears and the anger and the frustration and the hair pulling and the fingernail biting and the blaming, right? Yeah. Um, when you say, try again. No, that's not quite it, right? But I think, you know, Alejandra, to your point, I'm a person who decided in terms of my art making, I was going to have to create a space, right? Um, and one of the things that I realized very early on at the top of this um, pandemic was that um, I thought this was gonna be a come together and we all collectively burn it down, right? Cause we clearly <laughs> all got the same memo. Now is the time. And what I realized was that there was a very, there were many conversations going on, right? There was the burn it oh, down yeah. conversation. And then there was like, no, this is the time 
for people of color, historically um, marginalized or excluded people across many intersections to finally gain access to these spaces and these positions. And I was like perplexed because I was just like, I thought we was gonna be burned. I showed up with my flame, my torch thing, and y'all talking about going further into the house? <laughs> you wanna go into the basement? No, 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 no. <laughs> right, it's already partially on fire. Like this is dangerous, danger. You know, and I was abort, like, what abort, are we doing? Abort. <laughs> So like my, my understanding of my role had to shift at that point. I know for me that it causes harm, right? And for my own well-being, I like to focus on a space. I really say that no drink deferred is for everyone, right? Um, but it is a space that it centers what it means to be a Black theater maker in the Deep South, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so... Um, I know like I would much rather if I'm going to fight for anyone to make it, it's going to be this space that I want to fight and give my all. And if I'm going to be exhausted and burned out, I want to be exhausted and burned out about this. Right. But I can't. Um, but I also have to have a part of this work that I do with EJIC focused on historically excluded and um, people of color who are in these spaces, global majority people who are in these spaces who haven't left yet and making sure they're OK. Yeah. Right. And making sure there is work to be done to make sure that um, predominantly white institutions are still spaces where people are being treated well. That's all people who are there, because these systems, this white body supremacy, it's not good for anybody. It's not like white people are winning yeah. under it. Nobody's winning. Yeah, right. We talked about that a lot, that it's it's this affects everybody. This affects not everyone just... negatively. Right. <laughs> It's it's every reason that you feel like you don't you don't have enough or you can't work or you're exhausted. It, if that is all white supremacy systems working. So it's not just exclusive. It does, you know, um, on the spectrum, it is a little um, harder on other folks, but it is a problem that we all face. And there really should not be any predominantly white nonprofit arts institutions. Like that yeah. shouldn't even be a thing. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> so when people are saying they've done the work to see to your to your question again, it's also like not you are not going to say that sitting on a all white board in a predominantly white institution, you know, um, you're not going to be able to do that. You can't say that you've done the work. Some of these things would be different if work was being done. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's just being bold enough and brave enough to just say that, right? Um, to folks. Sorry, I know that sucks. It's like, you know, having to tell your child they've got to redo their homework all over again. It's like, ah, you know, and when, once it settles down, they're like, okay, let me just, what am I supposed to do again? <laughs> or, or let me give you the option if you don't redo it you're gonna fail and then you're gonna yeah. have to be there in that class all over again <laughs> right but I don't know about you like using that analogy like when I have my son redo his homework he does wail the first time and then he does it and the light bulb goes off right you know and he's like oh oh this is what it is it's like see when you actually do go back and do it correctly and listen oh. right yeah yeah it's <laughs> It reminds me of that trigger that happens in a lot of rooms where you're talking about white supremacy culture and then everybody in the room that is white says, oh, you're calling me a white supremacist. 
And it's just like, wait, was no, that said no, at all? no, that sentence was not even um, <laughs> spoken out of my mouth. But if that's the way it's reflecting on you, then perhaps you have things to think about a little bit deeper about how you're moving through this world. But that was never named. Yeah. John Green, <laughs> one of our facilitators, um, has this wonderful thing. When we're going over our group agreements, we have this one that says you make I statements, right? When you're talking about experience, instead of clumping everyone in a group or saying we speak for yourself, speak from the I. And he also says, and also I want you to hear from the I. Right. So when yep. someone's sharing something, they're like, I feel this way. And then someone over here is like, how dare you say that about me? And it's like, <laughs> they clearly started with I. <laughs> so not only use the I, but hear the I, right, as well. On the flip side of what you were saying, Alejandra. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. It is joyous work. <laughs> it is. It is. Even in the more challenging moments, it's still good to be, you know, in network and community with people who can find the joy, mm -hmm. um, even when it gets challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And just one thing that I think um, I'm always left with is uh, you say this every time is the people that need to be in this room are in this room. Yeah. Um, and so much time is spent on um, thinking about who's not or who didn't show up and da, 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 da. But the power to change is within the people that have shown up. And that's, that's right. what you got. That's the resource. And you can expand that to a bigger idea of your theater, your organization. The, the resources that you have are the people that are showing up. And if you don't like the way that looks, there's something deeper that needs to be investigated. But it can't stop you yeah. from doing the work. Um, the current norms and culture are were created by the people who showed up to create that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that probably wasn't everybody. Right. Yeah. And at the end of the day, right, it's always like this is all made up. We do. Yeah. We are upheld to these systems because we do work in a capitalist society. But right. Somebody made these up. And it is possible to make up and think up a new version of how you want this to work out that benefits right. you and everybody else. So it, th that's, that's show up. <laughs> Just show up. Yeah. And where can uh, folks find No Dream Deferred on social media or online? Sure. Um, online, our website is www.nodreamdeferrednola.com. Deferred is spelled D-E-F-E-R-R-E-D. No shade, no shame, just helping people out. Um, and on social, we're on Facebook and Instagram. We just got rid of our Twitter. But <laughs> at NDD Nola. So we, we look forward to seeing you. Tickets go on sale. Um, they don't go on sale until January, but feel free to check out our website for more information about the festival. Thank you, Lauren, so much for joining us on today's episode uh, where we talked uh, a lot about EDI equity, diversity, and inclusion. We also talked about other models in which leadership can um, be shared and the way our field is evolving and um, what it means to show up with equanimity. Um, so I hope you all really enjoyed this episode. Um, I'd like to thank Steve, uh, our amazing co-producer, and of course, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our guest, Lauren Turner-Hines. Links to her amazing work can be found in the episode description. Our interview took place in late 2022. Since then, the We Will Dream New Works Festival has launched, running 
from March to June 2023. The festival is a biennial event elevating the artistic development of black playwrights. Our next guest is Catherine Marie Rodriguez, actor, director, and core member of the theater and media company Fake Friends. Subscribe to our podcast to follow our conversations with the field. Until next time, keep doing the the work. work.